Our New Testament lesson is one verse today, but an incredibly important one. Really the first public proclamation Jesus makes when he begins the public phase of his ministry. The first beatitude. Listen now for God's word to us today as it is found in Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We live in a time of alienation. Mistrust is widespread in our contemporary context, and everything seems precarious. Not just in our political institutions, but across our culture, something seems to be missing. Cohesion, trust, and a sense of community are too often lacking. Fuses are short, and even mundane interactions can be fraught with peril. At a restaurant this week in the South, a brawl erupted between patrons armed with tongs after they had waited in a buffet line while the crab legs were being replenished. Arguments broke out over who had been in line first and whether too many crab legs were being taken by one of the patrons. Plates were smashed, injuries occurred, arrests were made, and the fight spread across the restaurant. This ridiculous conflict seems emblematic of our time. Think of the many situations you encounter, including on social media, where tempers are short and violence lies just beneath the surface. We frequently hear the refrains, we're better than this, and this is not who we are. Yet, as incidents like this keep piling up, The possibility exists that this is who we are. It's not just random interactions, but systemic problems like addiction that are a danger to our common life. The opioid crisis in the United States continues to claim lives. The situation is particularly acute in places where job loss due to globalization and a changing economy have left communities without viable industry and good jobs. This wave of addiction is not just happening in the poor and remote corners of the country, however. My wife Helen deals with addiction in the Henrico suburbs every day as a primary care physician. And many of you have seen the tragic results of this epidemic in your own families. You know that addiction can strike a person of any race or socioeconomic category. Depression is another tragic reality for many of us present and for our loved ones, and it is certainly a factor in our current predicament. Feelings of angst, isolation, and and unworthiness can make someone struggling with depression feel helpless with no relief in sight. The sting of social rejection, the feelings of inadequacy can become an all-consuming spiral, and even with assurance and help from family members and friends, Depression can be a debilitating force in one's life. The ancient psalmist understood the reality of depression in describing the failure of physical faculties and social rejection. We just talked about Psalm 31 in Sunday school this morning. I'm the scorn of all my adversaries, a horror to my neighbor, an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have passed out of mind like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. I hear the whispering of many, terror all around, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. 
the declarations of the psalmist here that terror is all around is also characteristic of our own time. Terror does seem to be all around. One of the problems we often see in Christian pop culture is that it does not really address the darker aspects of human experience, the depths of sinfulness, how helpless we can feel. There's no real engagement with what we often call the long, dark night of the soul. I pay intermittent attention to what Joel Osteen is saying because he is such a major force in in public discourse on what it means to be a Christian among many believers. I do pay some attention. He posted the following tweet yesterday. God says you will rule over your enemies. You're going to rule over addiction. You're going to rule over depression, rule over anger. God is putting an end to what's been hindering you. This would appear to suggest that we can just snap our fingers and all of our problems with anger, addiction, and depression will simply vanish from our troubled landscape. Needless to say, this is too simplistic of an answer. And we turn more intentionally to challenging places in Scripture. We turn with open hearts and minds to places in the Bible that reckon with human brokenness, with our fallibility, and with how God wants us to conduct ourselves in a fallen world where easy answers are lacking. For the next six weeks, all sermons from this pulpit will deal with the Beatitudes. The introduction to what many of us consider the greatest set of speeches, sayings, and parables ever ever uttered or written down, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount stretches from Matthew 5.1 to 7.29. The reason we call it the Sermon on the Mount is because Jesus actually moves away from the network of towns and villages in the Galilee region and moves to a mountain. For those of you from Second who are going to Israel in a few short weeks on the interfaith trip, I will be curious as to your take on the Galilee region. You may feel overwhelmed by the busloads of tourists and vendors hawking their trinkets, but I encourage you when you are on the Sea of Galilee or walking outside of Tiberias to step away from the, to, from the group, gaze across the landscape, and remember that Jesus taught and ministered on that hillside. And a collection of his reflections has been preserved in Matthew. This most famous of sermons begins with a series of Beatitudes. Since I'm kicking off this series on Matthew 5, 3 to 8, I get to geek out with you for a few minutes and explain exactly what a Beatitude is. Beatitude is Latin based on the Greek word makarios, which means blessed or happy. The beatitude was a known form of speech in ancient Israel and Egypt and in the Greek world. A beatitude declares a blessed or happy category of people. It designates a favorable status that God can bestow on a particular group of people, whether in this life or the next. In the world of ancient Judaism, the cultural and religious context that Jesus knew, this was a common form of discourse. He was not innovating it. The beatitude was probably used most often in worship as the leader would pronounce who was blessed in the liturgy of ancient Israel. Yet the Gospel of Matthew tells us that Jesus utilized the beatitude more as a teacher. These are doctrinal statements. He wants his listeners to know and understand. Notice the background, the important background in Matthew 5 two. 
Then he began to speak, and he taught them. His earliest followers were to learn these statements in Matthew 5, 3 to 8, learn them by heart, and apply them in their daily lives. The Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount have two distinctive elements or features, and we should pay attention to these. As New Testament scholar Hans-Dieter Betz explains, there's the actual Beatitude, the blessed are statement. In our case, it's blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, And then, followed by that, there is the promise. The promise is something we should expect. In our verse, the promise is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Consequently, a particular group is going to enjoy divine favor, the poor in spirit, including some sort of heavenly hereafter. But the beatitude is the most interesting part of Matthew 5.3, and it's what's unexpected. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This phrase, poor in spirit, is different from a comparable version in Luke known as the Sermon on the Plain. In the other text, Jesus simply declares, Blessed are you who are poor, not poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of God. Our verse in Matthew says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which raises the question, what does the phrase poor in spirit mean exactly? This is the only time in the New Testament that the phrase poor in spirit shows up, and the answer is not immediately obvious. I want to start, perhaps, by eliminating what poor in spirit does not mean. First of all, this passage is not glorifying poverty or saying that being poor is a desirable state. In the Jewish world of first century Galilee, this was scarcely conceivable. To be poor in Jesus' day was to be subject to isolation, betrayal, destitution, and even death. Poverty can still be just as dangerous in many places in the world today, including Richmond, so Jesus is not lifting up poverty as desirable. Also, the phrase poor in spirit does not counsel patience, in the wake of present difficulties. In other words, Jesus is not claiming to his first disciples, I know things are rough now, and keep people can be mean to you, but hey, it doesn't really matter, because in the end you're going to inherit eternal life. This type of mentality and interpretation of the Beatitudes, don't worry that things are unfair now, that you are suffering, that you are being oppressed because of your race or background, because in the end God's going to let you enter heaven has been used to justify systemic oppression, prejudice, and economic inequality. This first beatitude should never be used as an excuse for unfairness, because that's not the way it seems to be intended. So if we can eliminate those two possibilities, what does the poor in spirit phrase mean? Poor in spirit helpfully shows up elsewhere in the Jewish literature of Jesus' day, including the Dead Sea Scrolls. You don't hear the Dead Sea Scrolls invoked from the pulpit very much, but I'm about to. I don't want to get overly technical about it, but for these texts that were written by Jews who believed in a heavenly reward similar to that of Jesus and his followers, they used the phrase poor in spirit to describe someone who acknowledges his or her selfishness and brokenness before God and tries to respond with a life of service. As Uh, Professor Betts explains, those who use this term regarded themselves as poor creatures in the eyes of God as well as fellow humanity. They would try to conduct themselves humbly and unostentatiously, relying firmly 
on God's mercy and grace. So, to be poor in spirit is to recognize our human tendency towards anger and greed, to acknowledge our capacity to quarrel with one another at the drop of a hat, to choose a different path of humility and kindness built on a belief in God's mercy and grace. This is an unexpected and important moment in the early stages of Jesus' ministry. His first blessed R statement lifts up the humble as the recipients of God's favor, both in this life and in the next. Earlier this week, I had an unfortunate incident happen in front of Freeman High School, where Charlie, my son, is a freshman. I was dropping off his tennis racket for practice at the school, and if you will remember on Monday how incredibly gusty the winds were, 35 to 40 miles an hour. I pulled into the parking space, and as I opened the door, a strong gust of wind blew my door open. Uh, And I had my hand on the handle pretty tight, but it was too strong. It blew it open and whapped the minivan uh, paint and finish on the minivan just above the tire that was to my left. I got out and inspected it, and not only did I scratch the paint, but I put it, well, the wind, uh, I guess me ultimately, but uh, depends on how we want to look at it. Um, but so I not only scratched the paint, I put a little dent in this person's car. So uh, I had that moment that we all have, and I said, well, I need to leave a note here. Uh, and I didn't even, I didn't know if it was, I didn't know if I should go in and confess at the office or just leave a note. But I left a note and tried to wedge it under the um, uh, windshield wiper so that uh, it wouldn't be blown away in the wind. Uh, and about, uh, about five, six hours later, uh, I got a, car, a call on my cell phone, um, and the woman said, thank you so much for leaving a note. Uh, you know, I understand these things happen. It's a windy day. Uh, don't worry about it. And I, I felt bad, and I texted her, and I said, You know, the damage was more extensive than just a scratch. I'm really sorry if you change your mind. Let me know. Um, And she sent me this text. Don't worry about it. It will not impact the driving or the inspection. Cars are just things, expensive things, but still just things. Have a blessed day. Friends, the challenge of our time through prayer and careful reading of God's word to us is to tap into what Abraham Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. Our task is to figure out how to create a society and a world where acts like this woman's text to me went out over ridiculous fights over crab legs. Where Facebook pages about helping a family grieving over the loss of a loved one went out over rude and divisive posts on Twitter. To be poor in spirit is to recognize that it takes considerable effort and devotion to maintain a posture of humility and kindness, especially with so much suffering, argumentation, and uncertainty in our communities and in the world today. The New York Times columnist David Brooks just wrote an editorial about what he refers to as weavers. He talks about alienation, tribalism, and mistrust that are afflicting our society, and he mentions a project called Weave, the Social Fabric Project. This effort from the Aspen Institute declares that we need to be a nation of weavers at the community level. We can't wait, we can't wait on, wait for, or count on the next election to fix what ails us as a society. Brooks says this moment, movement of weavers doesn't even know it's a movement. 
It's people sprouting up in communities to do the work of service and weaving people together. As Brooks explains, some of them work at organizations, a vet who helps other mentally ill vets in New Orleans, a guy who runs a boxing gym in Appalachian, Ohio, where he nominally teaches young men boxing, but really teaches them life. A woman who was in the process of leaving the Inglewood neighborhood in Chicago when she saw two little girls playing with broken bottles in the empty lot across the street. She turned to her husband and said, we're not moving away from that. We're not going to be just another family that abandoned this place. This type of humility, this model for servant leadership, exemplifies what it means to be a weaver and to be poor in spirit, the way Jesus meant it in the Sermon on the Mount. In this country, and perhaps in our region in particular, generosity and a sense of community are usually abundant when national, natural disaster strikes. One of the more uplifting and hopeful stories in recent months has come out of Lumberton, North Carolina. We've all driven that stretch of I-95 just off the highway, as some of you know. There's a railroad underpass at the Lumber River Levee. Residents and city officials have recognized for years that this is a vulnerable spot and that sufficient precautions have not been taken by CSX to prevent flooding. A couple of years ago, floodwaters from Hurricane Matthew had spilled into the area as a result of this weak point in in the infrastructure. So before Hurricane Florence struck a few months ago and the torrential rains were about to hit Lumberton, calls went out on Facebook that help was needed for putting in sandbags to minimize the damage. Within five hours, more than 100 volunteers, including members of the National Guard, local town officials, many others in the community, had placed 5,000 sandbags at the railroad underpass. It didn't keep all the water out of West Lumberton, but the damage was not nearly as bad as it could have been. No one asked what political party the volunteers belonged to, who they voted for in the last presidential election, who they were planning to vote for next year. It didn't matter at this moment of crisis. A Democratic governor, a Republican state senator in North Carolina came together to identify a problem and to seek immediate action. It also demonstrated the positive role social media can play in our lives since word spread quickly and effectively about the need for volunteers. In the Shakespeare play, Troilus and Cressida, Ulysses says to Achilles, one touch of nature makes the whole world kin. The events in Lumberton prove that this statement is a timeless one. We band together when disaster strikes, and it's an amazing thing to see. Yet the question becomes for us how we carry the spirit of community and generosity to the ordinary spaces of our lives to the ebb and flow of our weekly existence together, how can we become weavers when we're not dealing with the after effects of a hurricane? One of my favorite country songs is called Humble and Kind by Tim McGraw. It's about respecting family members and friends, having good manners, especially patience, and refraining from judgment. And it's about recognizing that we are all poor in spirit, We're not individuals, but part of a larger tapestry of humanity. I love the closing lines of the song, Don't take for granted the love this life gives you. When you get where you're going, don't forget to turn back around and help the next one in line. Always stay humble and kind. Friends, Jesus calls us into a new way of being 
with the Beatitudes. And the message is one of promised reversal. I guess Joel Osteen was correct after all. God has the enduring capacity to set things right and to lift up those who have been experiencing suffering. As this passage from Hannah's prayer that Virginia just read declares, the Lord guards the feet of the faithful ones. The very first one words of Jesus' public ministry are that God protects the poor in spirit. Those who are humble and firmly reliant on God's grace, the people who understand that we are better off in community than as individuals, the ones who operate with kindness, they will inherit the kingdom of God. During our fractured and troubled days, this is a profound message as we enter the season of Lent. Our recognition of brokenness and the need for God's redemptive love. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Amen. Let us pray. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, be our protection and our guide. Help us in humility and in kindness to acknowledge that we are poor in spirit and in need of your redeeming grace. Help us to be your agents of transformation. Amen.